All right, well, it was a pleasure and privilege to be with you all again this evening. I would invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the Epistle of James. We're looking at James chapter 1. We'll be studying this evening verses 13 through 15. But for the sake of context, I'd like to read from the beginning of this epistle. So James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. But no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. So if you remember the context of this epistle of James, James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the most preeminent and central church of the, that time in the early church, um, James being the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered due to a persecution throughout the Roman Empire. And particularly, as we've just read already, these verses leading up to our sermon passage this evening, we've seen that he has had trials for, foremost in his mind. These people have been persecuted, they've been scattered, sent out from their homes. Naturally, they are dealing with a great deal of trials, and James is seeking to encourage them and instruct them in the midst of these trials. And now he comes in this passage in particular to guard them against wrong attitudes, a particular pitfall that can come to them and indeed can come to us when we are dealing with trials, and that is putting the blame upon God, laying it at God's feet, or after all, God is sovereign. And God knows everything. God ordains all of these things. So if I'm having a hard time, 
Why not lay that at his feet? This is the kind of thing that James is speaking to in this passage, and he wants to warn us against. He wants to instruct us in the right way for us to understand our circumstances. How should we understand God and our relationship to trials and temptations? And what hope does Scripture give us in the midst of these things? Well, my theme for the sermon this evening, the main point I want you to take away from it, is that we are responsible for the temptations and desires of our hearts. We are responsible for the temptations and desires of our hearts. And my practice is also then to have a particular question for the children. And I will admit this is potentially the most difficult children's question I've ever done, but I believe in you. Uh, And that question, children, is, if God can't be tempted, how is it that Jesus was tempted? If God can't be tempted, and that's what the passage says, how was Jesus able to be tempted? We're going to talk about this in the sermon. But let's look back at verse 13 here and get the idea of what James is saying and is instructing us to understand and believe concerning the trials and temptations that come in our lives. Verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we want to understand God's relationship to trials and temptations. Uh, Temptation is the word that is translated here in my translation of the Bible, the ESV. Some of your translations may have a different word. Some of your translations uh, may use a word like trial. Uh, Indeed, the words that James has been using for trial earlier in chapter 1 is the same word that he's using and is being translated here in the ESV as temptation in verses 13 through 15. And yet, we do find the ESV and many other translations translating it as a different word here into English for us. Uh, Why is that? What's the sense of this word, and what are we to take from this? Well, let's look at a brief overview of this word. So this word can mean trial, it can mean temptation, it can carry both of those connotations, or uh, even a test, a testing that is going on. Um, And this word, if you were to survey the New Testament, is very, very rarely attributed to God. It is almost universally a negative thing that we see coming into our lives, or at least something that is a challenge that is bringing hardship into our lives. Uh, And most often it is either associated with the demonic powers or is just mentioning that something like this comes into our lives, but it is not being affiliated with God. And for that reason, we might see why James is going here and is saying, do not say I am being tested or tried by the Lord, for God himself tries or tempts no one. But at the same time, we can't make it an absolute prohibition because the scriptures do use this word in connection to God in a few places, in particular Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It uses this word talking about when God tested, tried Abraham uh, in telling him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And even if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, you find that same word there in Genesis 22 where that happens. Uh, And even Jesus is said to do this to the crowd in in John 6, verse 6, 
Uh, he tests them. He tries them in this way. Uh, so when we see that there is this absolute prohibition concerning God and this temptation that, he, uh, that God does not tempt, uh, we are not to therefore understand that as this word can't be used in connection to God. That's not the point that James is trying to make. He's trying to make a very specific point. And specifically, he is trying to make the point that God is not the source of the things that lead us to sin. God is not in any way, shape, or form trying to take us along the road that we might fall into sin. That is not his intention. That is not what God is at work uh, doing. And so why does James say that God is not the source? Let's unpack this from the verse here. Well, he gives two particular reasons for why it is God cannot be the source of our temptations First, the first reason is God himself cannot be tried or tempted. This t- touches on an attribute of God that, actually a number of attributes of God, the transcendence of God, or sometimes called the impassibility of God, the immutability of God, but essentially the idea is there is nothing in all creation, it doesn't matter if you look at the angels, it doesn't matter if you look at anything whatever great power there might be in the universe, nothing in creation can act upon God. God transcends everything in creation. He is above, he is not subject to the will or the force or the power of anything in creation. He is the one who at every point sustains and upholds these things. And so therefore, there's no creature that can come to God and test him and try him and tempt him to lead him in a direction he doesn't want to go. God is not acted upon by the creation. He is the one always animating the creation for it to be able to do anything. But also further, there is nothing in God that is corrupt that would lead him into doing evil. God is pure, holy, and righteous, And so no one could come to him and find something in him that would therefore make him predisposed to do something that is evil. There is no cruel streak in God whereby a temptation or whatnot would lead him into evil. So in this way, God cannot be tried. He cannot be tempted. He is above this very thing. And for that reason, James is highlighting that God does not try or tempt others. And that is the second thing that he brings out. God himself tempts no one. For God, when he brings trials, even though we do see the scripture does use this word, does talk about God trying, testing, when he brings these things into our lives, he does this not so that we might fall, but rather that we might be confirmed and strengthened in righteousness. We see this from the opening verses of this epistle when we see James calling us to count it all joy when we endure these trials and temptations. Why? Because the outcome is a growth in steadfastness, a growth in endurance, a growth in faith unto glorification. Or even if we were to consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, telling us, of God's grace to us in temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, 
He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's purpose is never for, God is never bringing trials and temptations into our lives to try and get us to fall. God's purposes for us are good that we might stand in the hour of temptation and walk in righteousness. That doesn't mean we always succeed. But nonetheless, God's intentions are not for evil, but for good. Rather, we are responsible for the temptations and desires of our hearts. So James is trying to be very, very clear. God cannot be blamed for these things. We are responsible, and he then brings out this aspect of our responsibility in verses 14 and 15, where he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now this may seem a little strange to us that James is particularly laying temptation at our feet, saying there are temptations that we're dealing with, this is our fault. We can think of examples, well, aren't there others who tempt? Aren't there wicked people who try to tempt others? Doesn't Satan come and try to tempt us into doing evil? Well, yes, this, this is true. These, these things do happen. And from the context, therefore, we can see that James is using this word, though he's used it as trials more generally earlier in this passage, is using the word very specifically in this context. James is speaking of temptations that arise internally within us. So if we were to think of the different classes of temptations, we or trials, if we're looking at this, we could divide it sort of into three categories, just general trials, difficulties, challenges that come into our lives. Uh, they come from within, come from outside, or what have you. But if we were to look specifically at temptations, we can see external temptations, temptations that come to us from something outside us, another person, something we see, something we hear, that then stirs something up in us to potentially give us the ability, uh, the desire to, uh, to sin. And so that would be like Satan coming and whispering something into our ear and trying to lead us into evil. But internal temptations, and these are what James really does have in mind, are those temptations where we don't need anything from the outside to come and make us desire sin, but rather these are these things that come from our corrupt desires. We have corruption within us that desires things that are against God's purpose and will. And so if we're considering the scope of temptation, we can see Satan and others can tempt externally, but not internally. Uh, and Satan, though, can inflame our internal temptations, but our, we are responsible for our corrupt desires. They don't come from anybody else. They come from uh, ourselves and our fallenness. And this is particularly why God cannot be blamed for them. We are the ones who are fallen, and these come from our own wicked desires, for we are responsible for the temptations and the desires of our hearts. And so as James then brings out, it is our desires, or even that word could be translated lusts, and many times in the New Testament is translated lust rather than desire, though here 
Uh, The ESV, again, has desire uh, when talking about what it is that entices us, what it is that lures us into sin. Our corrupt desires, our lusts, are that which are the source of these internal temptations. And so it's true that as fallen creatures, it's not only our actions, not only our words, not only our thoughts, but the very things that we desire, the very things that we hope for, the very things that we set our hearts upon that are corrupt or can be corrupt. They aren't necessarily corrupt, but being fallen, they very often are. This does not mean that every desire that we have in this life is, is wicked and evil. There are very good desires that the Scripture even calls us to. Uh, Paul talks about one who desires the work of an elder, desires a good thing. We can think of things like marriage. We can think of things like God's blessing in our lives. These are good things to desire. The Scripture calls us to desire them. But even these things must be rightly ordered. We cannot desire them in a way that would elevate them over God's purposes and God's will for these things, nor that would excuse us for committing sin in pursuing these things that we desire. God and his kingdom must always be at the top of the totem pole when it comes to our desires, and we must always pursue the things that we desire according to the goodness that God has made them uh, to function. But we so often desire things that are wrong, or we desire the right things in the wrong way. And so when the object of our desires, when that's been twisted by our own corruption, is available to us, then we're tempted to sinful action. So we have a corrupt desire. We have then the possibility, at least theoretically, of, of sin in our minds, this latent potential for it. But then the possibility arises before us, and now there's an opportunity for action to be taken. And this is the step that James is really highlighting for us. And even we can see this very clearly at work, actually, in the fall, where when Satan first comes to tempt Adam and Eve, we first see that the fruit, before they ever take it, before they ever eat it, first Eve sees it and it's desirable. She desires something that she shouldn't desire. And now she has the opportunity, and it is her now corrupt desire that has been twisted that, go, that causes her to go and eat of the fruit and commit a sinful action. And this is the kind of thing that James is warning us about. Sinful actions don't come out of nowhere. They come from the corruption that exists in our own hearts. And so these sinful desires result in sinful actions Uh, But as I mentioned, these desires themselves are sinful, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more at length because this is actually a point of contention within some Christian circles, and it's important that we understand that the desires themselves are sinful, and that's particularly because they are against God's good created order, His intended purpose. If we look at the things that God has called evil, we can't say, well, it's just a neutral thing that we desire the thing that is evil just so long as we don't actually do it. No, we're desiring something. We're desiring evil. That desire itself is evil. And so we see here from beginning to end this corruption, this temptation, this lusting is sin. 
And we are responsible for the temptations and desires of our hearts. We cannot lay it at God's feet. We cannot even lay it at Satan's feet. These things come from within ourselves. And that, in short, is the teaching of the passage. Now let's apply it in our own context. First, let's relate this to our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and some current controversies that exist within the culture and within the church. There are two modern claims that you might run into in dealing with this kind of idea regarding our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The first claim is that Jesus must have been capable of sinning. Otherwise, if, he was, if there wasn't a real danger that he was going to sin in his temptations, then his temptations aren't really real, is the argument that they have. If, it, if it's the case that Jesus couldn't have sinned, then what is it really a temptation? And so if he's not really tempted, then he's not really human, and therefore Jesus had to be in danger of sinning when he was being tempted. A second modern claim is that wrong desires, as we mentioned, these these lusts, are not in themselves sinful or not sin themselves, but only the acting on them is sinful. Those are the two modern claims that we might see uh, in in our culture. And both of these issues are very important because they touch on our views of Christ, they touch on our views of the Christian life, and we need answers to these claims um, because they can lead us down some terrible paths. So let's consider each one in turn. Let's refute the first claim. Let's understand that Jesus was indeed able to be tempted But the kind of temptation that Jesus underwent was purely the external temptations of which we spoke before. There is nothing, there was nothing at any point corrupt in Jesus, no lust in him to draw him away to the kind of temptation that James is speaking about. James could not be talking about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this way because he had no wrong desire to lead him down the course of sin. But Jesus was able to be tempted externally because he was not only God, but also man and taking on human flesh. Though God is transcendent, immutable, impassable, humanity is not. And so as a man, he can be acted upon. He can be seized. He can be pushed. He could have a number of things happen to him. And so he likewise could be tempted And so Jesus was able to be tempted even though he was God because he was tempted not according to his divine nature, but tempted according to his human nature. And these temptations were properly real. They were real temptations. But at the same time, though they're real temptations, Jesus was not in danger of sinning, not because he had a special humanity that was unlike any humanity that had ever ever been, His humanity was an unfallen humanity, so it was like Adam's, but Adam's humanity was capable of sinning, and theoretically, Christ was as well. But there was no danger of Christ actually sinning, because though Christ exists now and forever in two natures, the nature of God, the nature of man, he is one person. 
And that one person is divine. And the divine person will never exercise his will in a sinful way. The eternal Son of God would never commit sin, even according to his human nature or his divine nature. And so there was no danger of Jesus falling into sin. But this didn't mean that the temptations were not real. Satan really did come and attack him with these temptations. If we were to use an analogy, if somebody is launching missiles at a target just because the target is impregnable and cannot be harmed doesn't mean the attack isn't real. It's a real assault that's coming against it. But praise be to God, our Savior was above falling to the assault. And so, Christ was too strong for Satan's attacks. But this didn't make him less human. The idea that Christ was unable to sin in his earthly ministry does not make him somehow less human than we are. Rather, it makes him more human because we were not originally created to be sinners. We were created to live in righteousness all of our days. And sadly, the fall has twisted that so that sin has come to be more of our reality. But it will not always be so. Praise be to God, there is a day coming when each and every one of us, if we belong to Christ, will be freed from our sinful proclivities and will live in perfect glorification beyond the ability to be tempted and fall into the temptation of sin forevermore. And we will be more human than we have ever been in doing so. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, likewise, as the true, the preeminent, the ideal man, did not sin, could not sin. Even better than this, as is brought out by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, because Christ was tempted and because he did not fail, he is able to help us. He is near to us. And so the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, verse 18, and 4, verse 15, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or again, chapter 4, verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But praise be to God, he did not sin. Our Savior knows what it is to be tempted, and there's no corruption in him. And he is a stronghold for us when we are tempted. Thus, we've refuted the first claim. Let us now refute the second claim that our lusts, that our sinful desires in themselves are not sin themselves. This is a claim that you'll find if you are encountering those who are from within the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, They have a word for this, a a fancy word called concupiscence, which just means lust. Um, But In their minds, the wrong desire is not actually sin itself. But you'll also find this in our modern controversies where those who are advancing what has come to be called side B gay Christianity. If you're not familiar with this, you are blessed. And I will give just a little uh, rundown in this. Essentially, these are those who are saying that, yes, 
homosexuality is wrong, is sinful, no one should act upon it, but having a homosexual orientation is not in and of itself sinful. That's the claim they're trying to make. And so they would say, yes, no one should ever act in such a way that is consistent with such an orientation, but the desires for homosexual relationships themselves are not sinful in this way of thinking. As we highlighted, a desire that leads only to sin and that does not, if it were to be realized, seek God's glory nor anything good cannot, therefore, be either good or neutral. It can only be evil. It can only be wicked and set against God and therefore be a sin. And this is clear from a sober reading of what we're reading here. And James is making it very clear that these lusts, these desires that are in our, that are in our hearts that are wrong, we are culpable for them. They are the things that are leading us to actual sinful action. But it's also clear if we were to look at what our Savior says <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 5, when he talks and uses this same word, and he says it is a sin if a man lusts after a woman in his heart. The desire itself is sinful, is a breaking of the law. Or James also, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, speaks of this, speaks of our passions, our desires, as being sinful. Where he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's abundantly clear the desires themselves are indeed sin. Now, why is this important? Well, here's what's at stake. If if our desires that are lusts that are against God's intended order are not sinful, can they be redeemed? Does one need to repent of such a desire? Many would say no. If it's not evil, if it's not actually a sin, it doesn't need to be repented of, and perhaps will never be redeemed. Some have even claimed that things like a homosexual orientation will come into glory with somebody who is saved by grace and will be part of their orientation for forever. This is rather a blasphemy to be spoken against God and his redeeming grace. But also, if we were to think about someone who's in such a circumstance, not only will these things be redeemed, can they be overcome? As a brother or sister who's in such a circumstance saddled with these desires for all of their lives, with no hope of overcoming them. Those who would argue that these are not sins sometimes argue very much along these lines. And so they seek to free us from responsibility for our lusts, for our sinful desires. But ultimately, all that this perspective does is make us helpless before sin. It doesn't free us from anything It makes us helpless before our corrupt natures. But rather, we see that we are responsible for the temptations and the desires of our hearts. And so we see here, as we now 
want to apply this specifically. How is it then that we deal with these temptations in our own lives? We do need to come to a firm conviction of what James is speaking of here. James is emphasizing that God is not responsible for these things in order to shine a light on the fact that we and we alone truly are responsible. We cannot blame God for our trials. We cannot blame God for our actions. We cannot blame God for our corrupt desires. All of these things come from us. God is sovereign, but we are responsible for the temptations and desires of our hearts And God has given us what we need to stand against them. So how can we stand against these internal temptations of which James speaks? What is our hope in dealing with these things? Well, first, I'd like to look at some practical considerations and then consider specifically the grace that God has given to us. So first, the practical considerations. There are three aspects of the path of sin that James lists in this text here. We see the corrupt desires first, that's the bedrock. Secondly, the opportunities to act on those desires. And then third, the actual acting, the taking advantage of those opportunities and doing the action. And so we need to soberly identify the way that we fall into sin at each stage and seek to guard against it. We need to identify the things in our hearts that are corrupt desires and the things that stem from them. We cannot run away from them. We cannot excuse them. Such action, trying to run away or excuse them, does not actually free us from these sins. It just enslaves us further to them, make sure that we cannot meet them by God's grace. And so we must take an inventory of ourselves and come to the conclusion and see what these things are. And then after identifying these things, we should put up safeguards against them at every level, at the level of the desire itself, at the level of opportunities for the desire, and at the level of action, of acting on those opportunities. What are these corrupt desires that we have? How can we fight them? Identify them, name them, and then think, okay, well, this is what is wrong in me, this is what is corrupt in me. What is the thing that is good to which this is related? If we're prone to lust, how is it that we can exalt in our minds and in our hearts not a desire for lust, but a desire for God's good intentions and purposes in, in marriage or the family, which is... Lust being a twisting of those intentions of the good gift of God in those areas. Or how do we do this at the level of the opportunities for sinful action? How is it that we eliminate opportunities? So if we think about, we find ourselves in situations where we have a particular proclivity to do something and there are these situations that tend to cause us to fall into a sin, to act on a sin? How is it then that we can avoid those circumstances? What safeguards can we give to ourselves so that we're not walking in time and time again to the same situation that leads to the same kind of outcome? We can guard ourselves against those situations so that we do not walk into them again. 
And then thirdly, when the opportunities are there anyway, for we're never going to be able to safeguard ourselves against every potential temptation and eventuality, so we find these opportunities coming to us to sin anyway, how is it that we keep from acting? What is it that we can do to put stops on ourselves? Whether inwardly, what can we be telling ourselves? What means of accountability can we find with others? How is it that we can guard against actually committing the sin when the opportunity does present itself to us? These are the kinds of things that we should be evaluating and seeking to put into action, making plans about that we might not sin against our Lord. And so these are practical considerations, but at the same time, we always need to recognize our purpose is never to put our full trust in these means, in these practical considerations, as though these are the things that are going to keep us from the way of sin perfectly, that are going to regenerate us and make us holy and acceptable unto God. They cannot do that. They cannot make us walk perfectly in righteousness. We can leave the world, we can leave all of the temptations of the world, but as James is highlighting for us, our desires themselves are corrupt. We bring our sin with us wherever it is that we go, and whatever systems we might put in place, systems do not and cannot overcome sin. Only the Spirit working in the heart will do that. And that is ultimately where we need to put our trust. So these things are helps. They are good practical considerations, but they are not where we put our hope and our trust. We must look to what God has given. And God in particular has given us first the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, whereby we are no longer enslaved to sin and only able to pursue sin, but we can pursue those things which are good and holy and just according to his word by his grace as we seek to turn from sin and walk in newness of life by his grace. And he has given us, therefore, the means of grace to help us in this lifelong quest to live faithfully to him. He's given us the preaching and reading of the word. He's given us prayer. He's given us the sacraments. He's given us the fellowship of believers and so many other things that are aids, that are the good gifts of God to communicate to us his grace and to build us up in the knowledge of Christ, to build us up in righteousness. And we are to be making use of these things and trusting in God to work by his spirit as we partake of them. And so, again, Scripture shows us what is right and wrong. We need the Scripture to instruct us, to teach us about the way that we are to go. The Spirit is given to us to strengthen us in the inner man, to give us the ability to will what is right. Worship is given to us. Prayer is given to us that we might seek to have our desires changed according to the standard that we have been shown in the Scriptures. We can come before the Lord and we can ask humbly according to his mercy that he would change our hearts that he would make us new that he would take that which is corrupt and make it pure before him and we would desire those things which are good and right and also he's given us christian fellowship to encourage us to correct us that we can have our brothers and sisters who we know like us are flawed, are wrestling with sin, but together we are seeking the glory of God, the building of the kingdom of God. As we strive to that goal together, we can encourage one another. 
We can hold one another accountable. And that can be a great help. As I mentioned in Ecclesiastes, the man who is by himself is easily overtaken. But where there are two or three, that bond is much harder to break. God gives us the help of Christian fellowship, and we should use it for our good in standing up against our inward temptations. And so in all of these things, when we're dealing with these temptations, we must bring them to God in prayer. We need to ask for his help. We need to confess our sins openly and plainly before him. We need to meditate on what is good. We see what God has said is good. Set our hearts, set our minds upon them. Fill our hearts and minds on these things and learn to desire them. And then make a plan to renew yourself in these good things. Not just to think about it occasionally, but to come back to them, to then pursue them, to taste and see that, yes, these things that God has said are our good and has said, yes, pursue these things, truly do bring blessing, truly do bring good things into our lives that cause us to rejoice, that bring us joy, and that conform us to the likeness of Christ. As we taste and see that God is good, that encourages us, that strengthens us to take the next step and to continue and go further and further on. So we must meditate and we must taste of these good things, and we do need the help of our brethren, seeking that those around us, whether in our family or in the church family, would aid us in our Christian walk. We are responsible for the temptations and the desires of our hearts, but praise be to God that we are not alone in fighting against them. We are responsible that there is deliverance in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is therefore good news that God is not responsible for our temptations because that means that he is a trustworthy help against every temptation. Whenever trial comes, whenever God sovereignly allows a temptation to come, whether from the outside or from that corruption that exists within us. We have to understand there's not only an opportunity for wickedness and evil, there is also an opportunity for good, for righteousness, for repentance, for us to walk in the ways of God. And God would have us to take that path. And he has given us these means, and he is a sure help for us in Christ. We may call upon him. And he will aid us. So let us, therefore, take proper responsibility, not running from the truth, not trying to shift the blame like Adam and Eve did in the garden for their sin, but acknowledging our sin before God. But then also let us give ourselves to the one who wins the victory over sin, a victory that cannot be undone, a victory that will be ours in fullness in the age to come. Christ himself is the victor over sin. By his grace, we are victors too. Therefore, let us pursue his upward calling and glorify him with our lives. Let us pray. Our Father, we do confess that there is no good thing that dwells in our flesh. We are corrupt wholly and completely. 
And yet we praise you, O God, that that which is true of us in the flesh is no longer true of us as new creatures in Christ. We thank you that you have renewed us after his image. We pray, O God, that you would enable us more and more to put to death the deeds of the old man and to walk in the likeness of the new man, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have given us. We pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts, that we may do that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray that you would humble us, that we might always be repenting and confessing our sins before you, that we might be seeking your grace, especially through the means of grace that you have given to us, and that we might even enlist the aid of our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in the race. We know we have a great cloud of witnesses and a great help in the body of Christ. May we together finish the race and gain the prize. May this all be to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.